Hello and welcome to Podcast 10, Food Systems, a conversation with David Nabarro. Hi, welcome back to my podcast and a big apology actually for not uh, doing any and or any blogs for about three months. I, I've been busy and, you know, getting back into university life, you get sucked into all kinds of directions and... And then there's been Brexit, which is a total nightmare because you come home and watch hours of parliamentary arguing every night over trading relationships with Europe at a time when life expectancy is falling, poverty rates are rising, uh, employment is a mess, although they claim it's full employment, and all kinds of problems going on in the world, not least of which is climate change, but we're merrily sitting wondering how to self-harm our nation in the best possible way. But anyway, um, we won't talk about... Oh, the nice, the funniest Brexit joke I've heard is is uh, that Indians and Africans are amazed, astonished, that it just takes a single vote to get the British to leave because it took them about 150 years. Um But today's uh, podcast is all about food and food systems. And I'm going to play a a slightly background noisy interview that uh, I have with David Nabarro. David, as you know, has a nutrition background. He was head of health at DFID. He ran rollback malaria. He was very senior figure in several administrations at WHO. And of course, he was a candidate as the... Uh, for the to be director general, it was uh, he came second to uh, Dr. Tedros in the WHO debate. But he's gone back to his first love nutrition, and he's leading a um, an initiative called Food, Sy- Food Systems Dialogues, which I think is very interesting. And I hope you enjoy uh, the interview. It's only about twenty minutes long. Um, just to start with, then on food, there's been a whole series of quite big reports. Recently, there was uh, the 2019 Global Food Policy Report from the uh, IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute. I'll I'll give the link. Um, Then there was an uh, inter-academic policy report from all the big academic agencies. I'll give the link to that. The Eat Lancet Commission was very interesting. And I I liked their key points. I mean, they're basically saying that the food we eat and uh, the way we produce it and the amounts wasted or lost have big impacts, not just on human health, but obviously on environmental sustainability. And if we want to achieve SDGs and the Paris Climate Agreements, we've got to pay much more attention to food because agriculture is 40% of our global land now. It's the largest terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. It's responsible for up to 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions, staggering actually, Um, and 70%, would you believe, of freshwater use. And it's also the biggest driver uh, of biodiversity loss. So food is important and In essence, they are saying that we need to have a diet that includes more plant-based foods and fewer animal source foods because it's healthier, more sustainable and good for all of us. Uh, Not an all or nothing thing, as some critics suggested that they were trying to uh, 
hoist veganism on the entire world. But they're saying make some small changes for a large and positive impact. Um, and certainly we've got a long way to go on both the undernutrition side. We've still got nearly a billion people going to bed hungry every day and certainly 150 million children suffering from that um, from longer term hunger. Uh, actually more than that, who end up stunted and about 50 million children who are acutely hungry. But then you've, you've had this huge pandemic, as you know, in overweight and obesity, which now affects 2 billion adults. That means the planet is heavier than it used to be. Um, so that was a very interesting report. Um, it got a lot of flack, including from the Italians, believe it or not, the Italian diplomats. And this interested me because when the child obesity strategy was put forward by WHO, it was not endorsed by two countries. One being, you guessed it, the United States of America, which basically vetoes all kinds of um, uh, UN resolutions. In fact, they're the only country in the world that's not signed up to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. But interestingly, on the child obesity strategy, Italy was the other country that really targeted this. So um, anyway, they had a bit of a go at uh, Gunhild Stordalen and the EAT Forum. But I thought it was an interesting report. And uh, they make a, a lot of uh, very good points. And then just this week, there's been a paper come out from um, the Chris Murray uh, Institute for Health Metrics Group in Seattle. They do these huge global burden of disease studies. They've looked at health effects of dietary risks in 195 countries. And I've been a bit critical of this on Twitter because, to be honest, I read it. It was all over the BBC and the Daily Mail, you know, bad diet to blame for one in six deaths. And I, I didn't find this very useful because... The first rule of epidemiology is that an association does not mean a cause. Um, and the way they collect national dietary data is highly inaccurate. Linking it in the way they do through modelling to death rates is extremely dodgy, I think. And, of course, correlations uh, don't mean causes. You know, Ronald Fisher, the great statistician, showed that the uh, there was a very tight correlation after the Second World War between imports of apples and divorce rates. But you wouldn't conclude from that you have to eat less apples to avoid your divorce. Um, the other thing is, you know, the garbage in, garbage out argument that, you know, the data they've used to assess dietary intakes and national surveys um, with their gold standard being 24-hour recall of diet. Well, anyone who's done a nutrition survey knows that this is unreliable at best and if you're using national data it's probably collected by a bunch of hired teachers sent out to collect information it's very unreliable um and then they do the usual very complicated i've called it statistical jiggery pokery where they you know they do this Monte Carlo stuff where they put it a thousand times through the computer which they think will make the data much more reliable but i'm very suspicious of all of this. So uh, I was a bit critical of it. Having said that, the conclusions of their report and the Eat Forum and everything else is that we have a huge problem with food and diet. 
food systems need to change and we need to think of imaginative ways of doing that. So it was a, a pleasure. I met up with um, David Nabarro recently in um, uh, Stockholm, I think it was. And it's slightly noisy, this interview, because in the background, we couldn't find a quiet room. Uh, forgive me, but you should be able to hear what he says. And David's always interesting. Um, I was, you know, trying to challenge him a bit on food regulation and, but see what he, see what you think of his, um, uh, comments. And, uh, I think we'll go back and interview him perhaps towards the end of the year to find out the results of, uh, his food systems dialogues. Okay, David, we're at the Eat Forum, so there's a bit of noise in the background, and we're talking about food systems, which is incredibly interesting. And at one level, it's quite depressing, because food uh, is incredibly wasteful. Uh, the whole system of working with farmers is difficult, as we're hearing. And uh, the contribution to climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, is... Uh, huge. I mean, about 30% of all emissions come from the food sector. You're back in your native ecosystem because you started off in nutrition when we first worked together a long time ago. Um, but you've got some optimistic views on this. I, I know you're aware of the challenges. What would, I mean, if I asked you what would be your three priorities for action, what would they be? First of all, Thanks for the opportunity to speak. It's great. Food systems are as they are. There's no point in coming at any discussion about food and saying they are broken or they don't work. They have ways of working. They have internal logic. And we have to work with that rather than seek to try to utterly uh, undermine them and and even destroy them. Secondly, for me, a food system is working well if it enables everybody to access nutritious foods and have a good chance of a healthy and productive life. Food systems are also working well if they contribute to the restoration and viability of ecosystems, particularly with regard to the health of soil, the availability of water, biodiversity, forests and oceans. Food systems are working well if they don't contribute to greenhouse gas emissions more than a really small amount and if they are good at sequestering carbon and at the same time they help people to adapt to changing climates. Food systems are working well if all who work inside them, often women, often really very poor people, are enabled to have prosperity and a good standard of living. I'm asking a lot of food systems. And at times I have asked myself whether or not this is just too much. But on the other hand, what I'm finding here at the EAT Forum is a real optimism about the potential for food systems to evolve so that they are sustainable. And lastly, because you asked me for three points, I am very pleased to see the emergence of people who are coming together saying we do want to encourage food systems to perform as they should in line with the sustainable development agenda. 
Yeah, a hallmark of your career has always been that you've tried to pull people together from lots of different uh, sectors and opinions and to try and get that creativity of both agreement and disagreement. And you've, you're spearheading this thing called Food Systems Dialogues. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? I've always had the view, you're right, Tony, that actually life works better if people with very different perspectives can align and work in a systematic and joined-up way for a result. It's that notion of the whole being better than the sum of the parts. I've seen that in many walks of life in which I've been involved. Now, in the area of food, there is a fairly high measure of agreement here, for example, at the Stockholm Food Forum on the value of having food systems that can contribute to the sustainable development agenda. But where things get more difficult is that a lot of individuals will have rather different perspectives on what it takes to get everybody to move in the direction that leads to that vision. And how do you help people who are perhaps pulling in different directions, have got different priorities to align? Well, in my experience, it's through dialogue, not just talking to people who you agree with, but talking with people who you don't necessarily agree with, understanding their points of view and seeking together to find ways to increase the level of agreement and to align. It's a sort of painstaking process. It's often felt to be a bit aligned to herding a lot of animals that don't necessarily want to move in the same direction. But it's so, so productive when you get it right. And in my experience, creating spaces where people can express their differences and yet feel safe is the key. So in the last six months, I've seen three organisations wanting to come together to support dialogues, not just here at international meetings like this one, but everywhere, at local level, at national capitals, in regional organisations and globally to increase the level of agreement, increase the level of alignment and get more rapid and effective results. So the food systems dialogues are designed to do just that, creating spaces where more agreement can be reached among folk who don't normally find it easy to do so. No, I I absolutely support that and I think uh, it's going to be an interesting experiment. Obviously, we live in dysfunctional political times, and you've got extremes. Let me take a sceptical view, just for a moment, although I'm not actually sceptical about it. Supposing you say, well, look, there are big issues in, for example, whether you regulate or not. We've heard this morning about sugar taxes. We know about the long-standing issues around WHO codes on breast milk feeding. Um, or, you know, breast milk substitutes, or child obesity. You know, where do you, where do you protect free trade rights, where do you protect the rights of children? Um, at some stage, I mean, where do you sit on the, if to take a broad view, self-regulation versus government regulation? Thanks, Tony. From where I come, in general, within systems, there has to be a very high measure of self-organisation. Right that leads to how they work. If systems can only function in the way that is required 
through external, intense control and regulation, it's quite unstable. Because if the regulation process does not work effectively for any reason, then the public interest will not be served. So where I'm moving to on this work is seeking ways of encouraging a self-organization within food systems that prioritizes nutrition, health, environment, climate, and rural development. Of course, I'm well aware that this is going to take time. I'm well aware also that it requires some steerage. Steerage one comes from science. I do believe that scientific analysis can help us to work out what is good for people and what is less good for people. And if we find, as I think is increasingly clear, that eating large amounts of sugar, particularly in early life, or consuming unsaturated fats throughout the young period, the period of youth, or eating the inappropriate sources of, of protein, for example, undercooked or to carbonize red meat, uh, leads to high incidence of ill health, then we should, I think, find ways collectively to shift and nudge systems so that they are healthier. Uh, lastly, if, if we are looking for incentives, then we again need to follow the science. Uh, but I'm not saying that means you work for an extreme position. I'm saying that you use the science to help move the totality of the system towards better health and recognizing that there will be advocates for more extreme positions, but most of us, particularly in political processes, operate in the mid-zone. Yeah, I mean, uh, and obviously respecting the right of a member state to take its own decisions. I mean, a sugar tax is very interesting because it is gathering momentum. There is an evidence base. I think about 30 countries have now uh, introduced a sugar tax, including our own, the UK, uh, in all slightly different ways um, to try and get companies to reduce the levels of sugar, for example, in, you know, beverages and the, and the like. Uh, but there are resistance, of course, and fast food companies have, uh, or, or, you know, sugar-intense companies or whatever, promoting products that might be considered by nutritionists not to be good, have their own lobbies and stuff. Um, where do you sit on that? I mean, obviously, you have to respect member states, don't you, and their political masters, because they're the people that will actually take those decisions. But um, you, you would hope, I guess, that the food system dialogues would help to create that space to shift it in, in a more beneficial direction. So I take a, a couple of, of views on this that relate to your, your analysis. Number one, I actually believe that it will be the pressure from people that will determine what is offered to them in the way of food to eat. And that if it becomes abundantly clear, particularly in schools and in universities, that young people having been informed about the dangers of high sugar intake, then decide that they do not wish to spend their money on uh, drinks or other products that are full of sugar, that that means that demand will reduce and in turn companies and others will respond by reducing the amount of sugar in their products. 
I don't think that companies will go on manufacturing stuff that people don't want to buy. So my vision of the future is much more based around people, their representatives, their societies and communities reaching collective decisions on doing stuff that is good for them and that influencing therefore the market by generating demand for healthier products and believe that that's the direction in which we will go. Now governments can help this process by providing signals that both help people to make choices that are healthier and can encourage companies to make marketing choices that are better for people. And something like a sugar tax is actually a signal into the market that will influence how that market behaves. But I think if one views it as you can only reduce sugar consumption through increasing the cost of a sugar-containing product through a sugar tax, and that's the kind of uh, the methodology that will be used, then I think that's a bit unstable because it then becomes an environment of conflict. Let me just give one small example. I was involved when I was working in the World Health Organization in something called the, the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control. And a key part of the early work was in, in a combative space where uh, the introduction of increased taxation was seen as a vital means to deter particularly younger people from smoking in a way that would lead to addiction. Now, the, the beginning phase of this was using taxation as a deterrent and as a signal. But increasingly, we're now recognizing that progressive companies that are involved in that particular business uh, are either diversifying completely or are shifting away from what they perceive to be a dangerous product in, in an effort to, to respond to new market demands. I, I know that this sounds possibly a bit theoretical for your listeners, and I'm very happy to be told that it is only through a confrontational approach that change will happen. But my personal view is that I don't think it's always like that. Part of evolution is about helping people to shift the way in which they behave with regard to how they eat or how they live so that it is in their own interests and that is the philosophy that I personally pursue. Just to finish on the small farmer, mm -hmm. um, I learned at this conference that something like 80% of all food is produced mm -hmm. by small farmers mm -hmm. and so it's largely a private sector operation mm -hmm. and we need to protect that. And there was a fascinating discussion yesterday. Uh, Sonny Vergez, who is an extremely progressive CEO of a very big agribusiness company, was talking about how they're very keen to move towards sustainable options. But he was worried because shareholders in these big companies have a very short-term view now. They used to buy shares and hold them for eight years. Now they're lucky if they do it for eight months. And then you had the leader of the Farmers Forum, I think, in India, coming in, who defends the rights of uh, small farmers. Um, and he was saying that the problem is that the farmer is facing ever-increasing consolidation, which is, again, driven, you know, of big, of big uh, manufacturers, 
of big suppliers of big supermarkets, which is eroding their margins. In other words, the farmer is having to cut their margins in order to sell into these. So in a sense, it's big finance that is kind of damaging the ecosystem. People like Sonny Vergesi wants things to be sustainable. The small farmers want them to be sustainable. But to a certain extent, the financial ecology within which they live is, is quite tricky. What, what do you... I mean, this is a big, big issue. And I'm yes, not you to can do I'll try to answer your coming <laughs> but you, question, no, but, uh, the question in a just, couple of minutes. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying... You started off, I mean, we first met when you yeah. were doing the Cozy Hills uh, rural development stuff in Nepal, mm. and you introduced me to computers, mm. and I remember you doing all this amazing analysis mm. on smallholders yes. there. Yes. Where, I mean, where do you think we are with them, and what would you see as some really good steps that we could make to protect the small farmers in Africa? So Asia? the most important point is what you said at the beginning, that farmers who've got relatively small land holding or produce, if they're fishers, produce relatively small catches from the rivers or the sea, or who've got rather small numbers of animals in their livestock holding, that these people are operating with very small margins. Bad weather can knock those margins very badly or even any change in market conditions so that they just can't sell their products for some reason or other can be, for some of them, catastrophic. And given that there are about half a billion uh, small farms in our world, which means possibly as many as two and a half billion people who in some way or other depend on the produce of small farms, either selling it or consuming it themselves, These are a very, very important community of people. And actually what's happened in our food systems is that mechanisation of agriculture in recent years has led to the possibility that some of the foods that all of us want to eat are available at relatively low cost. And this means that the markets for the produce from these smaller farmers are often eroded by the availability of quite cheap food that's come as a result of highly industrialised production systems. And that in turn disadvantages the smallholder farmer even further especially if they're trying to sell into markets where this cheaper food is also available. And there's a whole load of work that's been done that's demonstrated just how tricky it is for the smallholder farmer. Now, in this conference, we've been hearing a new development of thought, which is this relatively cheap industrial-produced food that is appearing on global markets is also unfortunately sometimes produced through techniques that have what's called collateral damage that that in fact they cause environmental disturbance or they release a lot of greenhouse gases and if you actually therefore worked out the true cost of some of this relatively cheap food it would actually be much much greater possibly even twice the cost right So you can perhaps start to develop an argument that says that, in general, smallholders who produce food with rather less 
collateral environmental consequences actually produce food in a cheaper way than the big industrial producers yeah. if you take into account the full cost of production. I suspect that over the next few years we're going to see a reassessment of what this true cost of food is. I don't think that necessarily means that, that the full cost will be passed on to the consumer. But because we have generally got used to paying quite low prices for grains, for meat, uh, for other produce, means that trying to get things right is very difficult. There's one last point, and that is there are some quite interesting large amounts of subsidies paid by governments for food production that often go to the large-scale food producer right. that also add to what some see as unfair market conditions right. for the smallholders. I do believe that the advocacy around the potential uh, well-being of smallholders and the importance of that for the future of our world and the needs for smallholders to be able to trade fairly and not to perceive that, that, that they are in an unfair position vis-a-vis -vis others in the, the food system will become an increasing area for discussion and one that needs our collective attention given the very large number of people in our world who depend on smallholder agriculture. Thank you. I mean, what I found interesting from the meeting this morning is that in your dialogues, you're using what the anthropologists call a, a sympathy group approach, whereby you get small groups. I think you're going to cap them at about 12 to 15. Each dialogue should be about about 12 people. Right. Otherwise, it, nobody, you, can't, you can't get full exactly. participation. And you're aiming to do this with a lot of people from different backgrounds. Yes. And also at different levels of the system. I think you want to take this down to country level. Well, I, I, I believe it should start at the local level. I yeah. think dialogue around the kind of issues we've just been yeah. discussing needs to involve the smallholder farmers, particularly women farmers, as well as the merchants who are buying the food, as well as local authorities. And the discussion has to happen locally as well as at national capitals, as well as globally. And then you have the, the power, hopefully, to bring it to the attention of some of the higher-level well, decision-makers. It's even more interesting than that, because the way we're hoping to do it is that the synthesised results of these dialogues, by having them available on the internet, mm. can then be used by the smallholders or by local communities, even by activist groups at different levels, themselves in their efforts to try to get their point heard. The idea being that a person can say, I have been part of this dialogue. We have produced these observations. We find that these observations are shared by others. Here is the results of our observations, and that is an empowering feature of participation in, for example, a national meeting to try to think through where policy on support for smallholder agriculture or on more nutritious food, where that policy should go in coming months and years. So it's, I think it's www.foodsystemsdialogues.org or com? Yes, so the easiest way, quite honestly is just simply the following email address. Right. FSDS at 4SD.info. 
Uh, say it again. Well, I'll put it on the podcast. I think that's well. Good. I'll put it in the letter. But it's, well. the idea is to make it really short. FSDS stands for Food Systems Dialogues. 4SD is the name of the organization that is curating the dialogues and point info because that is the domain, uh, the domain area. Well, I'm going to come back to you. I, I think in, what, nine, 12 months' time and see how it's progressing because I think this is a very important and quite innovative approach to uh, the links between grassroots evidence and policy, and we need these kinds of innovations. Well, I took my lead from you. I watched how you did this kind of work when you were in <laughs> Nepal, when you were working on the health of very small children, neonates, and you worked with communities, uh, often bringing women together in those communities, but with their men as well, to discuss some of the challenges they face in enabling very small babies to live well through the early years of life. I don't think sympathy group, frankly, is the right word for it. Yeah. In your case, these were very definitely groups of strong and influential people mm. who wished to make their voices heard. They were influential in their households and in their local communities, but they wanted to be heard internationally. And I believe that you managed to make that happen and to introduce at their request, some innovations that make a difference to the well-being of babies. Thank you. Well, I, actually, I was using the word sympathy, and the anthropologists use it more in the 18th century sense of, of sympathy, not as pity, but as a core element of how society works. But anyway, I will be back on your doorstep to find what's happening, because I think this is a really important Thanks for initiative. Much, Thanks, yeah. David. Okay, bye. Okay, thanks very much to David Navarro. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do share it with friends so we can build the community. Uh, if you want to get a copy of my book, The Social Edge, uh, you can do so uh, on Amazon or from www.thornwickpress.com. And um, I look forward to you joining me again. And I'm going to aim to get a podcast or blog weeks now that I'm back in the mood and hopefully Brexit will be over. Have a lovely weekend.